0: The following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. All right, friends, you can find your way back to your seats. And please grab your Bibles and open to John chapter 19. Uh, If you haven't noticed already, uh, we've got some Easter invites scattered throughout on the seats around you, and there's some in the back on the tables back there. Uh, this is really a one-time use only because we put the date of Easter. So we can't save these for next year. So take them and give them away liberally to your friends and neighbors or just to strangers. And, and you're welcome to invite them uh, to Easter. It's, it's uh, here next week at 10 a.m., just like every other Sunday. Uh, but we want to uh, take advantage of people's willingness often to, to come out. And uh, maybe God may be using that for for His purposes. So, grab these, use them. Uh, I would consider it a victory if there were none of these left by the end of today. So, even if you just take all of them and stash them in your wallet, uh, I will know the difference. Okay. Before we begin, we're going to pray for those who aren't with us, those who are sick, um, and or recovering. We're going to pray for John and for Sandra. Uh, Last week, she. Uh, by God's grace, was um, delivered Francis uh, healthy and uh, doing really well. Both both uh, John and Sandra are doing well. They're at home and resting. I'm going to pray also for Kendrick uh, because he's sick, and uh, and we want to extend prayer to him as well. Any other that I can think of or you can think of that we can pray for at this moment that I'm not remembering? Yeah. Um, my dad crashed his bike earlier in the oh morning, no so- Okay, yeah, we'll pray for Norm. Anything else? Okay. Well, pray with me as we pray for those brothers and sisters. Uh, Lord, we thank you for health and um, the privilege to gather in person. It is a, is a blessing and indeed a privilege, but we, we know that not everyone this morning uh, can, can be here. Lord, we're grateful for uh, the gift of new life in, in Francis. We're thankful, Lord, for the, the healthy delivery, uh, for the perseverance of Sandra, uh, for the, the work and the effort over these next several weeks that John and Sandra will have to pour out in love to their family. We pray, God, that they would be able to rest and take comfort and joy in the next few weeks, months, of finding and establishing a new rhythm. Uh, Lord, would you help them to recover well and to rest well in this season as they celebrate this, this joy. God, we also pray for Kendrick. Uh, Lord has come down with what we all might have had in the last several weeks and months. God, we pray that you would care for him and encourage him and comfort him now. And that though he uh, is ill, Lord knows that he is comforted by your spirit and uh, he would feel encouraged as he studies and prays this morning. And we pray for Norm, Lord, that uh, as he is headed to the urgent care, that there is no serious injuries, Lord, that uh, the doctors would be able to attend to him well, and by your grace, uh, lead him to, to full recovery in time. Lord, uh, we know Norm and is not often discouraged by things like injuries. And so uh, I pray, God, that his encouragement in this season would uh, be infectious and uh, be a sign of his joy in the Lord. We do pray for a quick recovery. And uh, Lord, if if it's pleasing to you that the injuries would not be serious. And, And all this and much more, Lord, we give to you as our provider and pray in the name of our great physician, Jesus Christ. Amen. John chapter 19, verse 38 through 42. After these things, these things being the death and crucifixion of Christ. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, And Pilate gave him permission, and so he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. And so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linens, linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb, in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Many people throughout history have amassed riches and wealth and fame for themselves only to die in obscurity, to squander their wealth and to die and be forgotten. Those who die even with their wealth may very well be forgotten in time. History is replete with examples of famous or rich individuals, men and women who died without a penny to their name. We think, for instance, of Michael Jackson, perhaps one of the most famous pop stars of all time, with nearly $500 million in debt. The list could go on, but we could also think of examples of those who were never rich or never famous in their life, and yet only after their death gained notoriety and fame and perhaps their own estate inherited the wealth that their name provided after their own death. Again, many examples can be cited here. Think of the famous artist, Vincent van Gogh, who never sold a painting for more than what it is now worth. Think of the author, Emily Dickinson, who sold a few books, but under a different name. The poet, William Blake, was not really well-liked in his day, but now is one of the most famous, famous of English poets. And the list could go on. Well, we're going to think this morning again of the death of Jesus, and he fits neither of those camps. And this is really the surprise of John's gospel, because Jesus was rich in glory before he came to earth, and yet lived in poverty and in obscurity and he died in poverty and in obscurity. But it is in his death and after his death in which his glory then returned. He is the only one unique among men and mankind who stands alone in this category, famous above all worlds, plunged into obscurity and human frailty, dying in this condition and receiving again all of the due glory and honor and fame that was His from the very beginning, never having lost a penny's worth of value or degree of glory, but set it aside that He might be ours. Jesus, we are taught from the beginning of this Gospel, was with the Father in the very beginning. He was the Word that was with God, and He was God. And though he was mistreated and crucified among his people here on earth, as John tells us, that he came to his own and his own did not receive him, we are beginning to turn the chapter in John's gospel where he will actually now be rightly recognized as the Son of God and worshiped as the divine Son of God that he is. The life of Jesus recorded in the gospels is but a brief moment in the eternal existence Christ has enjoyed, before and after which he has and is robed in splendor and in glory. So in the life and in the death of Jesus, he was not treated like the king you and I now understand and know him to be. But in this record of his burial, as John tells it, We see the treatment of Joseph of Arimathea and of Nicodemus who has come to Jesus before in John chapter 3. A demonstration of the true worth and value of Jesus as Lord and King. The beginning of this recognition, the cracks are beginning to widen and the glory of Christ once again is beginning to shine forth in a small and seemingly insignificant act of taking Christ down from the cross, of putting Him in a tomb, and of mourning His death. The burial here and the treatment of Jesus' body by these two men reveal that the Lordship of Jesus was about to be revealed to all of mankind in a unique and powerful way that Jesus' glory was once again about to be reclaimed, but only among those who had eyes to see and would have ears to hear. That those who would see in Jesus' face, the face of truth and grace, who would know Jesus to be the Word of God, the incarnate Son of God, who has taken the form of man and has dwelled among us, this light was about to shine more brightly than it has ever had before among the world. And so in this burial picture, we see Jesus' glory beginning to be revealed and the Lordship of Christ becoming obvious to those who would see. We're focusing on the Lordship of Jesus because the rest of the gospel focuses on the lordship of Jesus. Recall, even in his arrest, and in his trial, and even in his crucifixion, John portrayed Jesus as one who was always in control, whose sovereign purposes were at hand and were never to be thwarted. Jesus gave himself over to his captors. He did not run away or shrink back from his oppressors. He prayed for those who would crucify him, and he laid down his life and gave up his spirit, all willingly, because it was according to his plan that he and the Father had made an eternity past. Jesus is Lord. This is the entire message of John's gospel. We'll see in just a few verses and chapters later that John says he is writing this gospel that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and that in believing would have life everlasting. That is the message of John's gospel, that Jesus is Lord. And the surprise of John's gospel is that this Lord would be like us and take our place, and his glory would be hidden for a time. So hidden, in fact, that he would be crucified. The Son of God would be crucified by sinful men under Pontius Pilate. But the cracks in the wall are growing wider and Jesus' lordship is now being revealed. We think of Christ's lordship in three ways. We can think, firstly, Christ is Lord as creator. That is, he has within himself the power of creation. John reminds us, of this in John chapter one, that he was with the Father in the beginning and it was in him and through him and for him that the world was created, without which there is no other world. The power that Jesus exhibits and displays is the power to create. But John tells us in his gospel that this creator died then for his creation. Not only do we see this Lordship as creator, but we see in Jesus the Lord as master. He has power and authority, as any master over his servants would have, absolute sovereign authority. Not only because he has created the world and therefore has every right to govern it, but he has all authority over man. And he comes to claim that authority. He establishes his rule and reign in the hearts and the minds and the wills of his people here on earth as he establishes his kingdom. He is Lord and Master. And John tells us that he has come to die for his servants, that they would be no longer his servants, but friends. Jesus' lordship is ultimately seen in his lordship as Savior. As creator, he displays power and as Lord and master, he displays authority, but as Lord and savior, he displays love. And this is the greatest act of love that a friend would lay down his life for another. Jesus has come to die that he might redeem sinners. And so in his act of creating and becoming one of his creation, and his authority over his creation, yet dying to save them. In his act of love, that he might redeem sinners, those very sinners even who at one time participated in his his crucifixion. He demonstrates his lordship over all things. That you would believe and in believing, have eternal life. This is what John intends to do in this short passage about Jesus' burial. To put forward... The inbreaking of Jesus' lordship over all things. The reintegration or the recognition of Christ as the glorious Son of God. In other words, the death of Jesus thrusts his true lordship into view, what was once obscured by the frailty of his human condition. And was misled because he led himself to the cross. Now comes into full view and clarity. This Jesus is the Son of God. And it is his death, we see, that thrusts the lordship of Christ back into view. The burial story in John's gospel here is meant to highlight the reality that Jesus is worthy of a king's honor, and even, and especially in his death, he draws men's hearts to himself. That's pictured here in the burial, and I believe that's why John records this story of Joseph and Nicodemus coming to Jesus and giving him the kind of burial that criminals don't receive, that those crucified under treason would not receive, whose body should normally be thrown into a mass grave with those with whom he was crucified. But these men come to pay honor to Jesus because the death of Christ on the cross made clear to them that this was no criminal, but the Lord himself. We see in the text three aspects of the circumstances of Jesus's burial which point to the changing tide of his lordship from hidden and obscure to visible. Three aspects we see in the text. First, we see the nature of the tomb. The tomb is new, it's never been used before, we see. No one has yet been laid and it has not yet been defiled by death or filled with the stench of a rotting body. Jesus, the pure and innocent, spotless lamb, is the first to lay in a tomb. This was not his tomb, but the other Gospels tells us that it was in fact Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, who was a wealthy man, a man well-respected by those in his class. He was known even by the rulers and authority of the day. In fact, we see he has the authority even, or at least the stature, to approach Pilate to request that Jesus' body be buried before the Passover. The tomb itself speaks to the honor and the dignity of Christ as Lord. Though certainly a hole in a cave in the side of a mountain is not quite fit for a king. This man, Joseph, recognized that the best he had to offer was a rare and precious commodity in his day, a place to bury your loved ones to give to your family a place to be remembered. Viewing Christ on the cross, impressed on His mind so greatly that Jesus was Lord, that God and the Spirit moved within His heart so ardently that the tomb which was reserved for Himself and His family, which was purchased at no great price, at a great price, should be given to Jesus. Of course, Joseph may not have in full view the power of Jesus' coming resurrection. He would not have fully comprehended all that God would have in store. And insofar as he was aware of Jesus' teaching, like the rest of the disciples, he would have not fully understood that Jesus was intending to come back. And yet in his honor for Jesus as Lord, he gives away a very prized possession A generous provision and gift to Jesus, signifying that Jesus was no ordinary man. But one was er honored and worthy of a gift. Not only does the tomb point to his lordship and the changing tide of opinion about who Jesus was, but also we see the spices Nicodemus brings. Ordinarily, you would need some amount of spices to help cover the stench and the odor. Of a decaying body. But this much, 75 pounds by our account, the text is really hundred pounds by theirs, was above and beyond what was often necessary or available for most people. We know that Joseph was wealthy and well-respected, and Nicodemus himself enjoyed privilege among the religious elite of his day. He was an authority figure and had some ability and some means. And he, whether he coordinated with Joseph or not, brought 75 pounds worth of spices, myrrh, and aloe that Jesus would be wrapped in. This wasn't simply to mask the stench of the decaying body, but again, it was a sign of the worthiness and the honor that Jesus was due. Kings, royalty, received the kind of bounty of spices and myrrh and aloe that Jesus here receives. Carrying a hundred pounds of anything is no small feat. Carrying it to a tomb for a man who was just crucified as a treasonous traitor is different. But when the Lordship of Christ is on display, it is a small price that Nicodemus was willing to pay. The tomb and the spices together reveal in a small but initial way, that Jesus was the Lord. And they began to understand this and see it, and so sought the privilege to honor Jesus in his death. In fact, we see the third aspect of the circumstance of Jesus' burial, which points to the change of opinion, the changing tide of his lordship among us, is the fact that these two men were the ones to go and do this. Men who were powerful and influential would dirty themselves and even, by Jewish custom, defile themselves by handling a corpse. They would debase themselves in the hard and dirty and messy and bloody work of handling Jesus' body, perhaps even removing Him from the cross themselves, carrying Him to the tomb and dressing Him in linen. These men of great, respected, and high stature lowered themselves for Jesus. We think in combination the tombs and the spices and these two men would come and honor Christ in such a way. John means for us to see that their estimation of Jesus has radically been changed, no longer Is he one with peculiar teaching, one even that they were interested in, one even that they began to believe and hope was true? Mark would even tell us that Nicodemus, his hope was in heaven. He was hoping for the kingdom to come. And so that's why he moved forward. But Jesus was no longer just a rabbi or a prophet, but to them an honored man and even Lord They're called disciples, though in secret. The question we're going to ask and answer for the rest of the service is what changed? What changed their opinion of Jesus? What changed from their interest and even affection for Jesus to honor, to lordship? John tells us this was the death of Christ. That turned the tide. It was after these things, it says in verse 38, after these things that had taken place, all that God has done in Jesus' work and ministry on the cross, all that He has said and promised and do, all that was even not recorded here in the Gospel of John, but we see elsewhere these seven sayings of Jesus as He hung on the cross, the privilege of watching Jesus be led to the cross, the sovereignty and the control over which Jesus displayed and extended over even His own death, the praying, of forgiveness for those who would crucify him. Even the darkening of the day and the earthquake upon his death, all of this was viewed and seen by those who were watching. The death of Jesus impressed upon these men's hearts and minds that Jesus is indeed who he has claimed to be. It's the cross that changed it all. And in God's kind providence, He begins not with the disciples. He does not yet restore Peter to the place of privilege and stature among the disciples. Not these who had once followed him but now are scattered about. Not even John himself. But with these two secret disciples. Who were up to now fearful of what others would think of them. Unwilling and unable to claim Christ publicly as their Lord but the gospel and the cross changed all of that. The death of Christ does four things to a man. First, the death of Christ changes a man's mind. The death of Christ changes a man's mind. Opinions, of course, of Jesus are vast and varied. Ask anybody on the street, how they view or what they think of Jesus. And you'll get anything from a well-respected teacher, a good moral influencer, a prophet, a rabbi, a leader, a revolutionary. You may even get a communist, a leader, a teacher, a delusioned, homeless, sociopath. Opinions of Jesus are vast and numbered. We ourselves even hold multiple opinions of Jesus at once. Though with one side of our lips we praise Jesus as Lord and with the other we dishonor Him. Our our value and opinion of Jesus waxes and wanes with the times, with the culture, with our lives. However much, of course, it is that our hearts and our affections should be caught up in the lordship of Jesus, which should fully embrace Jesus as Lord, it is, as we see in the text, necessary that our mind also be led to embrace the truth that Jesus is Lord. In fact, it is our mind that leads our hearts and our affection to the truth that Jesus is Lord. The death of Christ changes a man's mind. Recall the story of Nicodemus who came to Jesus by night, as John records here. Full of questions. And in fact, it's a good reason to believe these questions were asked not necessarily genuinely, but with a tone of condescension. Do you really believe this? What are you really up to? Jesus, of course, Words penetrate deeper than Nicodemus probably meant for them to. And we see the course of time, those words began to do their work in his heart. And in his mind, as he pondered the scriptures, Jesus' rebuke to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 was, Are you a teacher and do not know these things? That in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, one must be born again of the Spirit? This certainly would send Nicodemus back to the word. And his mind would be engaged with the things of God. And it is through the word in which his mind indeed was changed. And when he beheld Christ and him crucified, all of the work and words of God and scriptures came true. And in a moment, he knew that Jesus was Lord. The death of Christ changes a man's mind. And friends, my question then for you is, has the reality of the lordship of Christ Been settled for you in your mind. Sure, you're here ostensibly because you think or claim or profess that Jesus is Lord, but is it a settled matter in your mind? Is it fixed and firm as a truth that Jesus is Lord? Or is it true five days out of the week? It must be a settled matter in your mind that Jesus is Lord. This is not a place you arrive at by simple intellectual exercise, but a feat and a truth you arrive at because God's revealed it to you in his word. In Matthew chapter 16, Peter answers Jesus' question, Who do you say that I am? Rightly, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus' response to Peter is, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but your Father in heaven. Your mind is changed, not because you have thought yourself into truth, but because it has been impressed upon you and revealed to you through God's word. And there on the cross, the word of God was revealed to Nicodemus, and to Joseph, and to those who would seek. It was impressed upon their minds that this was no ordinary man, that this was the word of God made flesh. This was Christ the Lord. It was the death of Christ which changed their minds. Secondly, the death of Christ renews a man's heart. The death of Christ renews a man's heart. We are not for sure what condition of faith these men had Before the cross, they were of some kind of secret disciple, we're told. They were fearful of making their allegiance to Christ known, and so certainly their discipleship could be questioned to some degree. If there were no faith, though, we see then now the cross put it there. And if there was but a small flame, we see now that the cross had fanned it into a burning zeal, where they were now no longer willing to hide behind the fear of man, but even upon pain of death, approach Pilate and ask for his body to put themselves out and show their true affection for Christ. These were men of little or no faith. But the death of Christ renews a man's heart, increases their faith. That is, a reflection on the cross, your reflection on the cross of Christ stirs the heart to put aside the love for the world and declare its love for God. As you set your eyes on the cross, what is stirred within you As you behold the glory there is a disdain for the world and a growing and intensifying love for God as he reveals to you that the man you behold on the cross is Christ the Lord. What is happening within you is renewal and a regeneration of your heart in which you disdain and set aside your love for the world and you declare your love for God that He has put into your heart. Friends, will God use your feeble faith? Yes. Yes, He uses your faith, however small it may be, however tired and weary you may be, however little you think it may be. God will use it and fan it into a great and burning flame for the glory of God. Faith, we're told, begins with hope. Wrote in, in Hebrews 11. It is hope in the things unseen and confidence or conviction in the things unknown. This hope we know will grow with knowledge and conviction as we behold Christ and are revealed by God's word, the glory and the worship that Christ is due. And so hope is, is fed with faith and knowledge. And as it is fed, your heart is renewed. So you may be here this morning struggling with your faith to see Christ as glorious, to fully settle in your mind Christ as Lord, and to live in that reality as Savior and Master, Creator of all things. Pray now that God would fan the ember of your faith, into a flame for God's justice and glory and mercy in Christ. The death of Christ changes a man's mind and renews a man's heart. Third, the death of Christ strengthens a man's courage. It strengthens a man's courage. These two men were afraid of what others may think of them, of what it may cost them for their public allegiance to Jesus, this man who was stirring up strife among the religious elite. But now the cost of ignoring Christ, because they have seen His glory and have settled in their minds that He is Lord and have renewed their heart and faith, the cost of ignoring this Christ now has become greater than the cost of man's scorn that they would invite. Though these men had much to lose, they knew that in Christ they had everything to gain. And so they went to Pilate. They picked up the body of Christ. They gave themselves to his honor. They became no longer secret disciples, but some of the first after Jesus' death to stand with and for Christ. Friends, courage, courage flows from a settled conviction of the mind that Jesus is Lord and it flows from a fixed hope of the heart that Jesus is who he said he is. Courage flows from what God has revealed to you in his word and what has been settled in your heart and what you have come to believe by God's grace. As you know this, You stand on it as true, and courage flows from that conviction. And it counts everything, as Paul would say, as loss compared to Christ. Philippians 3, verses 7-11, through Paul says, "Whatever Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul, as much as Nicodemus or Joseph, stepped away from all which he had sought and worked his life to obtain for the sake of knowing Christ. What he recognized was that the law would not provide his righteousness. What he recognized was Jesus is Lord and it is far better and far greater to be known by Jesus and to give yourself to him as Lord than to gain anything else. Courage flows from that settled conviction of the mind and fixed hope of the heart that Jesus is Lord and leads men to step out in faith and profess Christ, whatever the cost may be. Is the fear of man keeping you from honoring Christ? this morning? Are you afraid of what might happen to you, or what others may think of you, as you profess Christ in the marketplace, in your work, at school, at the dinner table? Are you fearful of what may happen to your reputation because you're a Christian and you're one of those. Consider the warning of Matthew 10, verse 33. Jesus says, whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Peter is feeling the sting of that rebuke now. But Joseph and Nicodemus, whether they're aware of that particular saying or not, No longer wanted to be afraid to claim Christ as their own. No longer wanted to deny that they were a disciple of Jesus. However tragic his end may be, they saw something in the death of Jesus that gave them courage to face the fear of man. Friends, I want you to face the fear of man with the courage and the conviction that Christ is Lord. It happens to all of us, to the best of us the most godly among us, moments in our life where we are fearful, even if for a few minutes, of what it would cost us if we were to say this, or to profess that, or to step out in faith and proclaim that. But Paul and Peter and Nicodemus and Joseph and all the others model for us what it looks like to honor Christ as Lord. How is God calling you to courage in your life? Where might he be asking you to step out and to publicly profess Christ? In baptism here, we profess Christ as Lord over our lives. But baptism, friends, is assigned to the church gathered. And it says to the world that we are Christ's. But the world is not present at your baptism. Though the church and the Spirit are, but it is a conviction of the truth of what is represented in your baptism that you go out into the world and you showcase that you are Christ's, that you belong to Him, and that He is your Lord. How is God calling you to courage in your life? Where is the area in which you must face down the fear of man, where you must come to believe that God is bigger than the circumstances you face? Where is it in your life that the lie which you've been believing is that it would cost greater to profess Christ than to deny Him? Friends, take heart and be of courage that He is going before you, that you may, in faith, proclaim Christ. And when this happens, you may indeed invite the scorn and the ostracism and even the persecution and suffering that many Christians all over the world even now embrace. But you would do so, friends, with Paul, counting everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ as your Lord. So the death of Christ strengthens a man's courage. Lastly, the death of Christ alters a man's life. The death of Christ alters a man's life That is, from this point on, for Joseph and for Nicodemus, nothing will be the same. Because they've come out of the shadows of discipleship, because they've embraced and seen and settled in their own hearts and made visible their own profession of Jesus as Lord, nothing will ever be the same for them. Indeed, nothing can ever be the same. Nothing can ever be left unchanged when a Christian confesses Christ as Lord, when it's been revealed to him by God's word and will that Jesus is the Son of God. In other words, to answer the call of Christ is to embrace Him as your Lord in every respect and in all aspects of your life. Consider just a few. It means that your life now is lived in obedience to Christ as Lord, that His teachings are to govern your life. He tells His disciples to go and make disciples of every nation baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit and teaching them all that He has commanded. We are to obey the teachings of Christ because He is our Lord. We cannot profess Him as Lord if we do not obey Him. We must embrace Christ as Lord not only in our obedience but even in our wealth and in our finances and in our living We must be willing to give up all comforts for the sake of Christ. We must be willing to sell our possessions if He calls us to. We must be willing to go if He sends us, to give where He leads us, and to give up what He commands of us. We embrace Him as Lord in our life, as we obey Him, and in our wealth, as He has provided for us. We also embrace Him in our vocations, as we serve Him. And whatever your job may be, and however you work and toil, you serve unto the Lord. Your job now is no longer in service directly to your boss, but to service to the Lord. His Lordship extends into your employment, and into your vocation, into all of your life, is in service to Him. The Lordship of Christ extends into our hardships, into our sufferings, and our trials. Even there, Christ is Lord. Even in the midst of our difficult situations, even when we are embracing the suffering that we have brought on ourselves because we have confessed Christ, He is still Lord in the midst of that. It never ceases to be. We must embrace him even in our hardships. We must embrace him as Lord, even over our reputation. What was at stake for Nicodemus? It was that a man who was supposed to know the Bible, now by the opinion of his peers, throws it away for someone who would preach blasphemy but he has come to know and understand that Jesus isn't blaspheming, isn't tearing down the Bible, but actually is fulfilling it. And though his reputation among the other scribes and Pharisees is now ruined, because he has given himself to Christ, it is intact with him. In all respects of our lives, we must embrace Jesus as Lord, because the death of Christ will radically change and transform a man's life. It is altered forever, completely changed. There is no Christian which is Christian only in part, but the whole man is changed when he is converted. And though it takes time for often some of our members to be fully submitted to the Lordship of Christ, we must commit ourselves that all of us, all of our body, all of our lives, from every end to the other is under Christ's Lordship, And so friends, if you profess Christ this morning, how does your life reveal it? How might others see and know that Jesus is Lord? If you come to the conclusion that your life speaks too little or n- even none of the worth of Jesus, what would be the next step? It is exactly what we've been saying all along. Look to the cross of Christ. It was the pivotal moment in Joseph's, in, in Nicodemus' life that revealed to them that this was God's Son. And so if you look upon your life and see a little example of how Jesus is displayed as the Lord over your life, if you look in your obedience or in your finances or within your vocation, or how you handle difficult situations, or how you shrink back because of the fear of man, and you have found yourself wanting in all of these respects, it is not to lament only, but to look to Christ. Because it is the Christ who has been crucified for you, which will radically transform how you understand who He is. And so the death of Christ changes a man's mind and renews a a man's heart, strengthens a man's courage, and alters a man's life. The significant change in these men's outward devotions reveals, in John's mind, the worthiness and the lordship of Jesus. And it reveals even greater than this, what his death on the cross can do to change the hesitant and the fickle hearts of men like you and I. That a heart of stone can actually be transformed into a heart of flesh that beats for God and lives for His glory. That our rebellion and sinfulness against Him, our desire to disobey all that He has commanded us, to reject all of His graces and to look on creation and see them telling of His glory and the reality of His Lordship, we look upon that and no longer see it as a lie, but as truth. And it is only the cross of Christ which reveals this to us. John records this burial narrative. He means for us to see what can happen when we behold Jesus' death. Hearts really can be changed. Faith really can grow. Courage really can can come from a place of conviction, lives really are altered. And He can do it for you. Consider the men and women in this church whose lives have been changed, in which you have seen the evidence of Lordship of Christ in their life, the sacrifices they've made, the steps of faith they've taken, the way that they've professed in public what they also profess in private. Commend them for this, but also follow as they do this. They reveal a change in their hearts, which is possible even in yours. And it came not from flesh and blood, but from the Father, who in setting their eyes and their hearts upon Christ crucified for them, changed their hearts, renewed their minds, and planted faith, they may believe, so Jesus' death becomes our hope his burial here becomes our resurrection that is the place of, of radical change and new life Jesus is put into the tomb and the stone is rolled over it as far as Nicodemus and Joseph is concerned it's the end of the story they've made their stand and they're prepared to live in obscurity because they aligned themselves with Jesus the Lord who came and died but friends we know the story doesn't end there And Nicodemus and Joseph and Peter and the rest of the disciples, all who are now stricken with grief and sorrow, will soon come to know joy because Christ will be risen from the dead. The stone will be rolled back and Jesus will walk out. He will be fully alive. And the glory which is beginning to be revealed in his burial, the way Joseph and Nicodemus have treated him, will become evident. First to Mary, then to the disciples, to the 5,000, and to the world. Jesus' death is our hope, and His burial becomes the place of our resurrection, of radical change and new life. Friends, let us hope and look to the death of Jesus as a place of our transformation, and lean on His resurrection as the proof that new life is indeed possible because of His death. Let's pray. Father, we ask that we see clearly the ways in which these challenges from your word can be worked into our life. This brief picture of how these men treated your son at great cost to themselves stands as an example to us of how we are to understand Jesus as Lord over our lives. But we have greater clarity and insight even than they did in this moment. For we know and have greater proof and greater confidence that Jesus really is alive and really is the Lord. His resurrection has proven it to us. So these men acted in great faith because they saw the truth of your glory and Jesus' Lordship. But we not only see what they have seen, but more so, Because we can behold the risen Christ. So we ask God that we would be so moved by faith as we reveal, or is revealed to us, the life changing, heart renewing, transformative work of Jesus on the cross for us. And Lord, help us to know that as He suffered for our sins, He was purchasing for us righteousness. We're grateful to you, Lord, for this and much more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com.